Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. For several decades after the pulp and paper mill opened in Cornerbrook in the 1920s, there was plenty of work for the men cutting trees for the mill. Conditions in the woods camps were at first rather primitive, but by the late 1940s, when this story was set, things were already improving. Here, El Emanuel revels in the beauty of the snow-clad landscape and meets a woman who lives contentedly in the woods camp in winter. I can't think why you would want to go into the woods in the middle of winter, said Nigel, my influential friend at the paper company. Well, I should like to see what the camps are like and how the country looks at this time of year, I replied. And that was an understatement if I ever made one. I was obsessed. I knew I had to see and to feel in order to understand the strange business of living in a logging camp in midwinter, even if I could only be there for a day. The cutting and hauling of pulpwood for the paper mills had become the largest single industry in Newfoundland, and while I knew in theory how it was done, I could not imagine the daily lives of men jammed in a bunkhouse at night, slogging through snowdrifts and felling snow-laden trees in the day, away off in the heart of an empty landscape. And these men were my friends and relatives, too. Well, I don't know what you're going to do unless you get a job cooking for a camp, Nigel said. Oh, be serious, Evelyn, his wife commanded. Why couldn't she go in Raymond's camp? I saw his wife yesterday, and she told me she was moving in for the winter. Later that day, Nigel told me he had made arrangements for me to go in with a scaler. I could hardly believe my luck. After years of trying, here came my chance. The company truck, laden with bales of hay, barrels of beef, and crates of vegetables for the camp, stood near the ramp of the warehouse when I arrived at eight o'clock next morning. Clarence, the scaler, was waiting too. Uh, we're going into Birchie, he said, and the truck will drop a stair so I can get me work done, and then we'll go on to raise for the night. Well, you don't mind taking me, I asked, so long as you don't freeze to death. Anyway, Mrs. Ray will look after you. We drove across the frozen river, crisscrossed with footprints, and up an icy hill around a bend over newly plowed roads bordered by eight-foot-high drifts and across the barren land where the wind had swept everything bone clean. It was bitterly cold as we climbed the side of Birchy Ridge, which marks the river's watershed, and then down, bumping over a rutted trail to the valley below. We found conversation impossible over the rattle of the tire chains and the grinding of the gears, and when we climbed out of the truck, our ears were full of the sound of quietness, our eyes full of the sight of stillness. The truck stopped at a branch road. Clarence shouldered our packs, and I put on my skis. Cut through that drunk of trees, and you'll come out onto an open space that stretches two, three miles. Bear left, and you'll come to a sled road that leads to the first camp. Now I'll meet you there before dark when I got me work done. And then his great shambling form disappeared on his way to inspect and measure the four-foot logs laid out in symmetrical piles eight feet high along the trail. Upon his inspection would depend the logger's check, 
and the contractor's fulfillment of contract. Short measure or rotten wood would mean trouble, and the scaler had a keenly developed eye. Yet he was always welcome at camp, for until he passed the wood, nobody got paid. So Clarence went about his work while I explored. For me, the land was static, silent, and lovely. The only sound was the swish of skis over powder snow and the plop from branches when I swung a pole to unburden a spruce. I stood quietly to watch a covey of chickadees, too cold even to chirp, and the ubiquitous blue jay who came to my feet. I fed the jay with crumbs from my sandwich and wondered what he would do with a whole slice of bread. So I tossed one to him, and he hollowed out a space in the middle, gobbling it up on the spot. He picked up the rest and attempted to take off, but failed. He jettisoned a little of his cargo and tried again, this time weaving an erratic flight towards the woods. And then he came back again. He refused to believe there was no more, but followed me complaining bitterly until I lost him in the trees as I skied downhill to the first woods camp. If I accomplished nothing else, at least I now knew what the forest was like in midwinter. Great, wet, lazy flakes began to fall, and through them I could just make out two yellow pinpoints of light from the cookhouse window. Clarence was waiting at the road's end. He looked concerned. Bad, he said, looking at the sky. Well, we could stay here, I suggested. He shook his head. Wait a minute, I'll see if the foreman is in. He emerged from the cookhouse in a few minutes, followed by a little man shrugging himself into his jacket. Well, I'd ask you to stay tonight, said the little man, only we don't even have a scaler shack, and you wouldn't want to sleep within half a mile of the bunkhouse. Well, why not, I asked. My dear woman, look at it. Well, it didn't look very big to me. Fifty men sleep in there, and what with wet socks and wet boots and everyone snoring. Well, I saw his point appreciated his wanting us out before the snow got too deep, and therefore refused the proffered cup of tea before he got into the truck to drive us to raise camp ten miles deeper into the forest. So we ground our way uphill and through what was now a snowstorm, over the ridge and down to a group of log huts, some in darkness, others dimly lit with oil lamps. And while Clarence unloaded our gear, I went, as instructed, to the door of the nearest building, as I was stamping snow from my boots, a woman appeared at the inner door, Mrs. Ray. Tiny and slim, in green tweeds with a soft red scarf about her throat, with silver earrings, sheer nylons, and black suede flats, her pure white hair was meticulous, her makeup flawless. I saw it all in a glance, Madame Vogue of the lumber camp. I felt as big as an elephant and twice as clumsy. Come in, come in, never mind the snow. And she took my arm and led me into her room. Now sit down there and get your boots off, putting me into a rocker near the stove, hanging my jacket behind the door. My, I'm so glad I'm here. I just came in this morning, been out to me granddaughter's wedding, and such a nice one, and I haven't got the rights yet, but you're welcome a thousand times. And when he told me you were coming, I said to Raymond that we didn't have anything grand, but what we have, you're welcome to. I looked around the room while she poured tea into a flowered porcelain cup for me. The room was lined at one end with shelves on which were books, a radio, a basket spilling out colored wool and writing materials. Under the shelves at one end was a dark green sofa piled with cushions of subtle colors, and next to it a massive leather-covered reclining chair. 
A large table pushed under a window filled another side of the room, and it was covered with a red felt cloth decorated with a soft green, while around it were set wooden chairs. The room was lit by an oil lamp in brass hangings and by the glow of a small stove open in front to simulate a fireplace. Directly off this room was a kitchen which, except for plumbing, had everything a housewife could want. Off the kitchen was a bedroom papered in a pattern of summer flowers with white painted furniture and bright green curtains. I told you, nothing grand, said Mrs. Ray, but we're comfortable here. Raymond built this part onto the cookhouse last summer. Of course, not every contractor can do this. Only we got a good stand of timber here, and it'll take five years or more to cut, so we can afford a bit of comfort. Well, we ate in the cookhouse that night, since Mrs. Ray hadn't time to prepare a meal. It was bright and warm and clean and empty. Well, where are all the men, I asked. I thought you had a crowd in. Well, they're all in the bunkhouse listening to the radio or sleeping. They've been up since six o'clock. Ray yawned, so we all turned in, I on the sitting room sofa, and by nine the silence was so deep that I could believe there was only me in the world with the moon and the shadowy trees, me wrapped around with the friendliness of my own land outside the window. I slept until Mrs. Ray called me. The men are off, and you didn't hear the racket. You didn't even hear Ray. When he went out, you were sleeping like a baby. Breakfast time now. The snow had stopped by morning, and we ate with the sunlight streaming in the window so bright that I had to put on dark glasses. And when we'd finished, Mrs. Ray brought me a pair of sealskin boots. You'll break your neck on the trails with those heavy ones, she said, nodding to my ski boots. And heavily clad against the sub-zero weather, we went out together to pace Mrs. Ray's trap lines. I put snares round the camp, more as an excuse to get outdoors than anything, though a rabbit for the pot is always welcome. But this morning the snares were empty. We did, though, have a grand walk up the hills with the frozen snow crunching underfoot, carpet soft to my moccasined feet and the trees overhead softly green against the glare, and the piles of cordwood orange-edged. In the distance was the whine of a saw, the muffled whack of an axe, and the tinkling of harness as we skirted a woodpile. We returned to the camp for lunch, which Mrs. Ray, now into a fresh blouse with her hair neat and a white starched apron about her, cooked to perfection. We sat before the fire while she displayed the needlework which occupied her time during the winter in camp, cut work on fine linen to make a tablecloth for her daughter, tatting round pillow slips for herself, and a name delicately embroidered on a handkerchief for her granddaughter. And, of course, the ubiquitous knitting without which no Newfoundland woman is entirely comfortable. Ah, the winter's never long enough, she said, for me to do all the work I bring in. I could hardly believe that, I told her, considering the long evenings and the lack of other activities. Yes, but I got lots to do around the camp besides needlework. First thing in the mornings, I have to see if the cook has what he needs. And if we want anything, I have to order it. And that's some job. You see, we have a telephone connection with the warehouse, but there are four or five other camps on the same line. So first I'll have to wait till the line is clear, and then maybe the phone isn't working well. Sometimes we have to bang ours with a hammer before we can hear anything. And when I do get through, I have to wait to find out when the truck is coming in so as we can meet it at the crossroads to pick up the goods. 
and then I do raise books, pay bills, keep the men's timesheets, and check on their unemployment stamps. Then I do raise books, pay bills, keep the men's timesheets, and check on their unemployment stamps. And I write raise letters. Generally, if it's fine, I'll take a walk in the woods after lunch. I always carry a few chocolate bars or cookies for the men I happen to come across, and by the time I get tidied up in the afternoon, the men are coming back, and there's sure to be cuts and splinters and bruises to see to. Of course, anything serious, we get out to the clinic right away, but the small things I look after. I took a course in first aid, she finished proudly, before I started coming in with Ray. I really likes it here, she said. It's a hard life, even with the comforts we have, but we love it. And, of course, it's hard for the loggers, too, even if we do have one of the best camps around here for comfort. Such as, I asked. Well, mattresses on the bunks, for one thing. When Ray was just a logger, and that's about twenty years ago, they used to cut spruce boughs to sleep on. They had to root out the bits of boughs that stuck into them, and their Sunday job was to go out and cut fresh. Half the time, poor mortals, in the woods in the middle of the day with their stomachs fair gone, they had only sour bread in their lunch boxes and couldn't eat it. If they said one word of complaint, down the line they'd go. Too many others waiting for the job. Makes you mad, doesn't it, to think about those times? Well, I suppose most camps have mattresses now. Oh, yes, I believe there's a law about that now. But there's no law, at least I never heard a tell of one, that can stop a contractor from crowding his bunkhouse. Some places, men sleep like sardines in a tin too small, and worse is they never get their clothes dry. I heard Ray say many's the time that he'd put his wet socks and pants on the line to dry for morning, and some fellow would come and throw a wet harness over them. Next day, he'd have to put on the clothes half dry and go into the woods like that. And washing? We do the best we can for them here with basins and plenty of hot water, but honestly, I can't see how a man can live in camp and keep himself clean. Well, whose fault do you think that is? I asked. Everybody's. They're all too busy trying to make a dollar to worry about the next man. Down in the mill, they got it cozy, but do you think they ever stop to think about what makes the mill run? Not likely. As long as the logger doesn't complain, that suits them. They look down on us, think we're dirty and ignorant, and I wonder how dirty they'd be without their flush toilets and showers and drinking fountains. And the contractor's too busy trying to get his wood cut and hauled to think about it either. Anyhow, let's not spend the afternoon gabbing. Soon the loggers trailed in wet and tired, cold and hungry, and Mrs. Ray began to perform her duties. Next afternoon, she said, I'll take you down to the pond and we'll see if we can get some trout. We fished through the ice with hooks festooned with fat-backed pork, squatting down close enough to see the little trout wiggle up through the thin film of ice constantly forming over the hole. They came up almost to the surface before they took our bait and were rolled out and popped into a basket. It was intensely exciting. And then the sun began to set and we stopped fishing to watch. The green sky was slashed with ribbons of purest orange. The sun painted heavy outlines of gold around white clouds. It threw blobs of angry red clear across the horizon to the eastern hills and slowly wore its frenzy to calmness. As we left the woods camp and headed home the next day, a lovely thought came to me in this beautiful winter landscape. If there is original sin... Then there must be original joy, 
And this was it. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of Ella Manuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode in which Ella discovers the remarkable history and music of the Scots of the Codroy Valley. Mm-hmm.